You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 6, and this section that we're going to be looking at is really about other-centered living. And it begins in Galatians 6 verse 1 where Paul says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourselves or you also may be tempted. So he begins by saying, if someone is caught in sin, it's important to note, he's not saying, if you catch somebody in sin, right? We're not supposed to do detective work and try to figure out if somebody is secretly in sin here. What he's getting at is that those who fall into temptation, those who are struggling, that the rest of the people in God's community should be eager to help restore this person with gentleness. And I think it's important also for us to mention that he's not saying that we should try to get rid of sin in the church. That's not only impossible, it would be completely foolish for us to do that. You know, what God wants from us is to live under grace. He realizes that we have problems because of the fall and that we are uh, tempted in many various ways. And so when we fall into sin, when we fall into temptation, God wants for us to have a community of people who can restore us gently as we have lost our way. That's why I think the New Living Translation really hits the nail on the head on this verse where it says, if another believer is overcome by sin. I think the picture that Paul is trying to paint for us is sort of like a sheep that gets caught in a thicket. And the shepherd or the people who are in charge of that sheep are to try to help free that sheep from the bondage that they're in. And so likewise, we all have problems. We all struggle. We all have our our issues that we have to deal with, and we rely on the people around us to help us out of that. Also, Paul doesn't use the normal word for sin here, which in Greek is hamartia. He uses a different word, which means something like to lose one's footing. So this encompasses a little bit more than just like falling into sin. This also describes struggles that we may have, such as feeling discouraged, depression, anxiousness that overtakes our lives, a variety of different struggles. And he says, you who are spiritual should restore this person. And again, this word in Greek means to put into order as to restore to its former condition. It was actually a medical term used for setting a fracture or a dislocated bone. And this really fits with the picture that we see of how God pursues us. When I think about my life, God pursued me in a place where I was really at the end of my rope, where I was in a really dark place. And God probably pursued many of you in a similar situation where you were really struggling and and at a, a, a really dark place in your life. And so likewise, as we struggle, even in the Christian life, God pursues us to help us out. You see, most of the problems that we have don't just magically disappear once we become a Christian. We still struggle in various ways. 
And you think about James 4.2. He says, we are tempted in many different ways. We all struggle. We all suffer from self-centeredness. We all suffer from narcissism. We all suffer from distorting the truth to make ourselves look better. And so we have these problems and God wants to help change us. Now, some people might say, who are you to tell other people how they should live their lives? You should just be willing to love and accept people for who they are, right? Well, what we would say is that the biblical definition of love entails gentle correction, that it is actually a form of love. You know, when you think about somebody who is doing something that's harmful to themselves, it's negligent for you to just stand by and watch them destroy their lives. And so, in the same way, God says there are certain things that are damaging not only to you, but the people around you. And so, you need people to help you understand that, to see that clearly. It often assumes that people mess up and need to change. We all have our problems. We all have our issues. And we struggle. And you know, the people who are self-righteous, religious people who thunder down these judgments on other people from their moral platform, you know, what they normally do to justify or to convince themselves that they don't have any problems is that they narrowly define sin so that they hardly struggle with anything or uh, that they don't sin at all. And yet, what we see is that that is a useful fiction for churches that are steeped in self-righteousness. The thing is, when, when churches succumb to this self-righteous atmosphere, people, instead of being honest about their problems, just go underground with their issues and their sin. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the famous German theologian who lived and was persecuted during World War II by the Nazis, says, the pious church permits no one to be a sinner Everybody must conceal his sin from himself and from the church. We dare not be sinners. Many Christians are unthinkably horrified when a real sinner is suddenly discovered among the righteous. So we remain alone with our sin, living in lies and hypocrisy. So the alternative to living in the light, to being honest about our issues, is for us to go underground with it and to pretend that we have our lives together when inwardly we're struggling. It also assumes that God's written word sets the standard for right and wrong and that it instructs us for how we ought to live. In our day, a lot of people say, well, right and wrong is just really a matter of personal opinion. Now let me ask you this question. What's the difference between this statement? Everybody is in, entitled to define right and wrong for themselves. And the statement, there is no such thing as right and wrong. There's really no difference between the two. You see, for there to be some sort of objective morality that transcends culture and time, it can't be just a matter of people's personal opinion. It can't be just based on societal norms that people accept. You know, some people say, well, times change, cultures change. 
Well, you know what God says? He says, I haven't changed at all. And I'm certainly not going to lower my moral standard to accommodate the immorality of the human race. And so what God says is that he lays out in Scripture a basis for right and wrong that is determined by his perfect moral character. And that when a community of his followers come together under its authority and have decided to live according to what it says, then we have a basis for exhorting and encouraging one another to live according to what God says. He says, you who are spiritual should be the ones to restore. Again, we need to remember the context. He's not saying you who are spiritually mature. This isn't like something that's only relegated to pastors or professional ministers. This is talking about the average believer in Christ. God calls every believer in his spiritual community to restore other people. In Galatians chapter 5, which we studied last week, remember Paul describes those who have the Spirit as those who bear fruit of the Spirit. And he describes people who characterize themselves with gentleness. And so what he's talking about here is every single believer rallying around individuals within, his, within God's community who are struggling. It also suggests deep involvement in each other's lives, which I think in our culture today is odd because on the one hand, we want to keep people out of our business. We don't like people knowing about our issues. We try to keep that secret. And yet, on the other hand, we feel an intense sense of loneliness and isolation in our culture. I think some of us, even though we're surrounded by people, feel alone. Have you ever felt that way before? I know I have. I, I recall this one moment where it was like my freshman year of high school, and I was at a party with like a few dozen friends who I spent a lot of time with during that period of my life. And I remember as we were at the party and like people were hanging out, laughing and stumbling around, I remember thinking to myself, these people are my friends and yet they don't know what's going on in my life. I feel completely alone. And so it's possible to be surrounded and yet alone. I think one of the things that has exacerbated the loneliness that we feel in our lives right now has been COVID. And I don't have to explain to you what that's like. It's been hard for a lot of us. But the Harvard Gazette recently published an article in October 2020 that talks about the growing isolation and loneliness that young people feel, especially in our country. They say, of the respondents to a national survey who reported feeling lonely frequently, or almost all of the time, or all the time, 61% of those age 18 to 25 reported high levels. Even more troubling when combined with the June 2020 data from the CDC that showed that 63% of young people reported experiencing substantial symptoms of anxiety and depression. Older teens and young adults may be particularly susceptible because they're often going through major life transitions. Students in college may be struggling to fit in and feel homesick. And young people are also often making 
critical decisions about their professional and personal lives and relationships, which can add to the stress and sense of isolation that they feel. That's staggering that 61% of young people your age, 18 to 25, feel like they are alone most of the time or all of the time. I also think that what happens in some cases is that we are surrounded by people and yet we project this persona of ourselves to others that we want them to see that's very different from reality. Recently, I came across this woman who got a tattoo that says, courageously and radically refuse to wear a mask. And before you jump to conclusions, it's not what you actually think. Apparently, several years ago, this woman was talking to a friend who paid her a compliment and said, you courageously and radically refuse to wear a mask to describe that she is a very authentic person. And so for a couple years, she had been contemplating getting this tattoo. And in March, I think, 4th, she got this tattoo (laughs) two days before the first reported case in Kentucky. Now, two things can be learned from this. Number one, think carefully about that profound statement you want to get tattooed on your body. (laughs) Secondly, make sure to spell check your tattoos. I remember uh, this one guy who got this uh, fresh tattoo and he's like, bro, I got Philippians 4.13 tattooed on my forearm. I was like, let me check it out. Pulls it up and I look with shock and horror. I was like, dude, that says Philippines 4.13. (laughs) Now, you know, the thing is, when we look at God's spiritual community, what he envisions for us is that we know each other well enough to carry each other's burdens. You know, here's the thing. You can't have it both ways. You can't, on the one hand, be known by people, and on the other hand, keep people at arm's length. You can't have it both ways. And so if you want to be a part of a community where you can get the help that you need to be known by people on a real deep level, it requires openness and vulnerability. It requires people getting into your business. It also implies that we have an understanding of Scripture and some proficiency in applying it to people's lives. You know, God urges us to continue to grow in our knowledge not so that we can flex our knowledge and act like we're more spiritual than other people or that we're more righteous than other people. It's so that we can help other people out when they're struggling with gentleness. He also says that we should watch ourselves or you also may be tempted. Over the decades, I have seen very gifted men and women fall into grievous sin that have destroyed their families that have ruined trust among their friends and have also discredited them for having influence for Christ. And, you know, in those moments when I first discover about this sin that had been, you know, hidden, 
on the one hand, there's like anger that I feel. But on the other hand, there's a sense of sadness that they have damaged not only their lives, but the lives of the people around them. But the one thing that I typically take away from these incidents that happen throughout the years is that I, I take it as a warning. You know, one of the things that I realize in these moments where I see somebody who's incredibly gifted fall into sin, fall into temptation is, that could happen to me. And so when you restore people, when you bring loving correction into their lives, beware of self-righteousness. Realizing that even though you may have your life together in the area that you're trying to help them out with, you, you are prone to falling in other areas. And so there needs to be this level of humility, realizing I'm no better than you. I'm just trying to help you out, and other people are trying to help me. He says in verse 2 through 4, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks that there's something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. So Paul says that by doing this, we fulfill the law of Christ. Now, if you've been with us throughout the book of Galatians, you know that Paul has been arguing for five solid chapters against living under the Old Testament law. So is he contradicting himself now? Well, remember that when Jesus was talking to this expert of the Old Testament law in the Gospels, this expert asked him, he said, tell me, how would you summarize the law and the prophets? And Jesus without missing a beat, said, love the Lord your God with all your mind, with all your heart, and with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, the entire law is summarized by this statement. And Jesus affirms that loving others is the fulfillment of the law, that it's the new command that he gives. He says it right here in John 13, verse 35, where he says, a new commandment that I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. So that's what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, if you want to fulfill the law of Christ, then you should love one another by helping restore those who are ensnared in sin or who are struggling. He also says that we should carry one another's burdens. Now, our burdens are the things that are excessive weights that we carry, things that we can't handle. And at any given time, we have a burden that we have to deal with that God says other people in his community should help us out with. But the thing is, Paul isn't saying, hey, you need to look at people so that they can carry your burdens. No, he says, you carry other people's burdens. You see, often we expect others to, to carry our burdens. We sit around and we say, you know, people are just aren't loving me the way that I feel like they should. I'm not getting the kind of attention and help that I need. And so we sit around waiting for people to come and love us and take care of us. And we feel dissatisfied about that because we're waiting on them to carry our burdens. Instead, what God wants us to do is he wants us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to put our eyes onto other people. 
And by doing that, as we focus on meeting each other's burdens and lifting those up, if everybody buys into that vision, then we don't have to worry about our needs being met because somebody else is going to take care of that. Meanwhile, we're able to take care of somebody else's needs. And really, this is an important turning point for a lot of people in their Christian lives. It may be one of the reasons why many people don't make it following God long term is because they have not bought into this idea that the true excitement and joy in the Christian life comes not from getting people to love me, but to going out and loving other people. I remember the moment when this really clicked for me Many, many years ago, I think it was like maybe the first year after walking with God, I was so thrilled that people were showing me so much attention. They were talking to me about my problems. But then what started happening is new people started showing up. And the attention started to shift to the new people. And I started to feel like, well, hey, man, what, what about me? I got needs. I want people to love me. Remember me? I was the new guy a few months ago. And I remember feeling really, really discouraged after a central teaching just like this. And I, I remember actually going out in the middle of the teaching because I was, I was struggling so much that I was actually thinking about just quitting. And I saw a woman out there who was from my home church and she noticed there was something wrong with me. And she was like, what's going on? And I was like, Nothing. And uh, she kept pressing me, and I was like, you know, the, I don't know what's happening, but, like, I just feel really dissatisfied. I was really excited about God, especially the first few months that I was here, but now that excitement is starting to wane. And, you know, the biggest problem is I just feel like people, like, aren't loving me the way they should. I, I just feel like the attention is now focused on these new people instead of me. And so she sat there patiently listening the entire time and waited until I was done. And she said, you know, I think the key here is for you to not worry about people loving you. It's about loving other people. And I said, did you just listen to what I said to you? <laughs> I was telling you that I, I feel like people should be loving me. And she's like, no, I understand what you're saying. But my point is that if you want to live a rich, exciting Christian life, it's about being a contributor, not being a taker. And so I tried it. Two days later, I went to home church. There was a woman sitting on the couch. She seemed like she was distraught. Her countenance had fallen. And as I was walking past her, I was, I was saying to myself, don't make eye contact. Do not make eye contact. And in a momentary lapse of concentration, I looked up at her and we locked eyes and I knew that's it. I'm going to have to talk to her. <laughs> so I sat down on the couch. I was like, hey, what, what's going on? And so she just started pouring out her heart to me about how she'd been going through a really difficult time. And I did, I probably listened most of the time. I wasn't really giving much advice because I didn't really know much about what God had to say. And so I offered, you know, a few words of encouragement, and it seemed like it helped. And what a difference it was. You know, I walked into that meeting feeling really down, feeling like I was ready to quit, feeling dissatisfied with the Christian life, wondering whether it was even worth it. 
And then leaving that meeting just soaring with excitement, my heart completely full of joy. And I thought to myself, that's where it's at. That's where the excitement from the Christian life comes from. It's not about people loving me. It's about loving other people. And, you know, we sense that. We realize that on some basic level because, you know, as we sit there and we think about ourselves and we're self-absorbed and we sit there and fondle our feelings, you know, that doesn't make us feel better about our lives. That causes us to feel even more miserable, right? And it's a helpful distraction to be able to talk to somebody else and stop thinking about ourselves and think about others. He says, too, that we should do so without comparing ourselves to someone else. You see, comparison breeds discontent. When we look around at other people's loads, their burdens, it sometimes creates within us jealousy, bitterness, and envy. We think to ourselves, how come this person has such privilege and I have to struggle? How come they have their parents who are taking care of their rent and their utilities and pay their tuition while I'm living hand to mouth and getting buried under a mountain of student loan debt? How come I have to struggle with chronic illness and I'm limited in what I can do while everybody else around me lives a full life? And so we feel anger and jealousy. We feel unhappy. Sometimes that jealousy actually turns into self-righteousness where we tell ourselves, I'm better than her because she hasn't gone through the things that I've gone through. You know, comparing ourselves to other people causes us to be unhappy. Recently, I heard a story about a woman who did a thought experiment on her kids. And luckily, it was ethical, right? (laughs) she decided that she was going to get three envelopes and put a $20 bill in each of her envelopes. And then individually, she would give one of her children an envelope containing the $20 bill with the other two sitting there. And she'd be like, open it up. They'd open it up, and they'd pull out a $20 bill, and she'd say, are you happy? And you know what they would say? I don't know. And she would be like, what do you mean you don't know? I just gave you $20 that you didn't have prior to that. And inevitably, what they would ask is, what did you give my sibling? And she would say, I gave them all $5. And then they would be really happy. Then she would say, no, 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 actually, I was just lying. There was a $100 bill inside of the the envelopes, and then they would be sad. You see, The way that we often think about happiness is in relative terms. We think what we have is really, really nice. You know, like we have a nice car. We take it through the car wash once a week. You know, we take extra care to make sure that it's waxed and it's clean. And we look at our our car and we think, man, what a sweet Honda Civic. But then, but then we, we jump on social media and we see that somebody else has a nicer car and then now we think our Honda Civic is crappy. Or we think we have a great lifestyle, we feel content with it, and then we see somebody else who seems to have a better lifestyle and we feel discontent with ours. You see, when it comes to 
comparison, it doesn't just stop at envying other people. It also tends to bleed into Christian community as well, where we envy the kind of work and service that other people are doing. We feel a sense of jealousy that their uh, role in the body of Christ is more visible or seems to have more impact than ours. And that's why Paul says each one should test their own actions, which again, I don't think is a really great translation of this. The New Living Translation puts it this way. Pay careful attention to your own work. Don't worry about everybody else. Stop competing and jockeying for position. You know, when we look at somebody else's contribution, we should be happy that we're on the same team and that we're working toward the same goal and purpose together. I mean, comparing yourself to somebody else and the role that they play in God's community would be something like an offensive lineman being really jealous of their quarterback. You're like, your job enables your quarterback to do well. You're not competing against each other. You're working together. And likewise, what we'll see sometimes is that we start to look at other people and be jealous of the contribution that they make for God. He also says in verse 5, for each one should carry their own load. So we have burdens which are excessive weight that weighs us down. These are, these are things that come into our lives, suffering, trials. But he says you should carry your own load, which is what God has put on your plate. And so for a lot of us, that means doing our job well, maintaining our job and not getting fired, doing well in school, paying our bills, being a contributor in God's community, playing your part. And if we're not doing that, if we're not taking care of our basic needs, carrying our own load, then somebody else is going to have to pick up that slack. Think about what the Proverbs say on this. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says, The slugger does not plow after the autumn, so he begs during the harvest and has nothing. You see, to be an other-centered giver, we need to resist being a taker by not taking care of our own stuff. Verse 6, he says, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. What he's talking about is pooling together money within God's community to be able to meet the basic needs of those who devote themselves full-time to instructing believers in the Word of God. And, you know, I remember when God called me to do this job, to work full-time for Him in this church. I was working a full-time job. I was leading three different Bible studies at different locations. I was teaching three or four times a week and the leadership of the church was like, hey, can you teach a little bit more? And I was like, I'm just maxed out. I don't have any more time. And they were like, well, we want to hire you on full time. Now, the thing is, I never aspired to work for the church. I had no desire to do so. In fact, I resisted it. But the thing is, when God says, I want you to do this, there's only one correct answer, and that's yes, sir. And so... You know, God has supported my needs through the contribution of the people in our church. And, you know, as a church, we should do that for those who are laboring among us. 
Now, it's unfortunate that in the modern Western world, people are suspicious of Christian leaders because they use their influence in order to line their pockets. It's so discrediting that there are these people, these so-called men and women of God who use their influence, who use their position of authority to manipulate their members in order to live these lavish lifestyles. It's crazy that in our culture today, people don't even bat an eye when they discover that a Christian preacher was misappropriating money. Or when they see that a Christian preacher was using the donation from their church, the donations from their church, to build a palatial mansion and line their driveway with Maseratis and Bentleys. It's a disgrace. And I think that there are a lot of people who are non-Christian people that don't even give the message of Christianity a second hearing because of the noise that this creates. And so it's important that Christian leaders live a simple lifestyle so as not to dishonor God or discredit the message of Jesus. Verse 7 and 8, he says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. This part of the passage, I think, is a little bit confusing because it seems to go back to this almost karmic way of thinking about heaven, right? Like if you do bad things, then bad things are going to happen to you in your life. Or if you do really good things, then God will reward you with eternal life. But that's not what he's talking about. When he says you will reap eternal life, you need to consider the context here. He's talking about supporting those who labor among you by preaching the Word of God. And so, what he's saying is, through your financial contribution, through your sacrificial giving, you can actually reap eternal life, not for yourself, but in other people's lives. That people can actually come into a relationship with God by hearing the good news that Jesus came to die and pay for our sins so that we can have a relationship with God. And that when we contribute to full-time Christian workers, not only here in this church, but across the world, that we actually get to participate and reap the benefits of their work. This part, though, does apply to us. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. And what he's talking about is devoting all of your energy, your time, your financial resources to things that at the end of the day aren't going to matter or to live a materialistic life. Because honestly, when we live that way, it only brings about misery in our lives. Think about what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, verse 9 and 10. He says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and have actually pierced themselves with many griefs. So many people in our culture envy the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And yet, when we look at those people, they tend to be the most miserable, unhappy people, despite the fact that they have so much. And so what Paul is saying is, he says, 
Don't envy those people. Don't try to mimic them because honestly, if you want to live a happy life, it's not about accumulating stuff and more money. It's about giving generously to the needs of others. Verse 9, he says, Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. These are welcome words of encouragement during a really difficult year that all of us have faced. You know, a lot of us have really struggled in our mental health. Some of us have succumbed to temptation. Some of us have been on the verge of quitting following God. Some of us feel extremely lonely. You know, this year we've taken so many body blows. And yet, the fact that you are here says something. The fact that you have had the resilience to keep going, even though times have been difficult, says something. And what God wants you to know is you shouldn't give up because in due time you will reap a harvest. He promises you that. Let's see if we can kind of summarize what we talked about here. If you were to summarize the other-centered life, it would be a life that is not boastful or egocentric. It is a life that is not competitive. It's willing to correct in love with gentleness. It's humble. It's one where you bear other people's burdens when they have the excessive weight of something like a trial or suffering in their lives, but also bearing our own burdens so that we are not an unnecessary burden on others. It's also a life of self-sacrificial giving. And finally, it's a life where we persevere. We don't give up, even though it's difficult. You know, there's a lot of exciting things about the Christian life. There's a lot of things that are rewarding. The Christian life is a happy life. But it's not an easy life. It's a life where we struggle sometimes. And we need to be prepared for that and be ready to persevere during times of difficulty. So when we take a step back and we look at this picture of what kind of community God wants, the vision that he's giving of the kind of environment he wants to have in this church, I guess the question we should really ask ourselves here at the end is, what would it be like to live in a community where everyone bought into this picture? Everybody would have their needs met, and yet we would avoid the self-centeredness that we see in our world. It would be a place where there's grace, where people can experience real healing, where people experience the love that they feel like they've been missing. It's also a community where we feel like we actually have real meaning and purpose in our lives. And I think that even though in some ways we are doing well, I think we have a ways to go here. I think we can continue to improve. There are aspects where we can push ourselves. But it starts with you. And the question is, which one of these things should you work on? 
What is God saying, you know, this, this area is something that you should think about and really consider how you can move forward. I'll just pray for us. Lord, thank you that you give us this amazing vision of community that's so different from what we see in the world. It's a community of self-sacrifice. It's one of love. It's one where we can support one another when we struggle. I pray that you would transform us and that we can continue to strive to become this kind of community that you describe in the Bible. And we thank you that even though we imperfectly try to live this out, that we do get a taste of this somewhat in our church. I pray, too, that we can become a community, not so that we can just have our needs met, but also so that we can be a light in the culture where I think so many people uh, just feel disillusioned and unhappy and feel like there's this just pall over the world in which we live. I pray that we can stand out as something different. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.